What would be worse? Losing a loved one in a horrific accident in which they definitely suffered a lot before dying? Or literally losing a loved one and never knowing where they went or with whom? Now multiply that by five. Five missing loved ones, all gone, presumably the same way. But to this day, it's not clear exactly which way that was. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a parent who knows my family should have a disaster preparedness plan, but hasn't gotten around to making one. Of course, now that I've said that out loud, I have to do it because now it's like out in the universe or something. The family in today's story also clearly did not have a disaster preparedness plan, although with the way the disaster struck and the string of what can only be called extremely bad luck, a plan might not have done much anyway. And just a quick note up top, if you don't like stories where children get hurt, maybe skip this one. Giorgio Sadu came to America by himself from Sardinia in 1908 when he was just 13 years old. At Ellis Island, most likely, his name was changed to George Sodder because of racism. By the way, I found out recently I'm 1% Sardinian, so George could have totally been my distant cousin or something within that 1%. But can you imagine a 13-year-old moving to a whole new country where they can't speak the language and they don't know anyone? I don't know about you, but when I was 13, I was crying about River Phoenix, using a buff puff, and coveting Monica Lipschitz's Sony Walkman. Not exactly solo immigration material. George went to work right away as a laborer, and in 1923, when he was 28, he married Jenny Cipriani, another Italian immigrant who'd moved to America when she was just three years old. By 1943, George and Jenny had 10 children and had settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, where George owned and ran a successful coal trucking business. The family lived in a big two-story house about two miles north of town where they were considered, quote, one of the most respectable middle-class families around, end quote. By Christmas Eve of 1945, the ten Sodder children, John, Joseph, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, little Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia ranged in age from 3 to 22. The second oldest son, Joe, was away from home serving in the army. The family was in good spirits that evening and were made even cheerier when 17-year-old Marion came home from work with more presents for all the kids. Around 10 p.m., parents George and Jenny went up to bed, taking their youngest, Sylvie, up with them. The other children asked if they could stay up for a little while longer to play with their new toys. John and George Jr. went to bed around 11 p.m. and later said they couldn't recall if their younger siblings had gone to bed by that point or not. Usually, it was Marion's job to put the younger ones to bed, but Marion had fallen asleep on the couch while reading a magazine. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang and Jenny came down to answer it, finding only Marion in the living room, so presumably the others had gone to bed. The call was a wrong number, but while she was downstairs, she noticed all the lights were still on, the curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. Jenny locked up, left Marion undisturbed on the couch, and went back up to bed. 
Just as she was falling back to sleep around 1 a.m., she heard a loud bang on the roof, followed by a rolling sound, as if something heavy had landed and rolled down the slope of the roof. But it was windy that night, so Jenny didn't worry too much about it and soon fell back asleep. Just a half hour later, Jenny was awoken again, this time by the smell of smoke. And here, there are a couple of slightly different accounts as to what happened. But Jenny either went downstairs and saw George's first floor office engulfed in flames, or when she woke up, their bedroom was already so full of smoke that there was no need to investigate. She yelled for everyone to get up, and for some reason, both she and George left little Sylvia in her crib in their room. Marion woke up and retrieved Sylvia, and she and her parents, along with John and George Jr., managed to escape to safety outside. Again, in slightly differing accounts, in the chaos, John and George Jr. either called out to their five younger siblings to get up and get out of the burning house and thought they had heard their siblings answer, or John went into their room and shook them all awake to evacuate. At any rate, both John and George barely made it out themselves, apparently just making it down the stairs before the stairs were engulfed in flames. Both boys sustained minor burns and singed hair. There's also a version of events in which George Sr. called out to his kids as he ran toward the stairs and thought he heard at least one of them reply. Once out on the street, however, the family quickly realized that the remaining five children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, ranging in ages from 6 to 15, weren't there. I can't even begin to imagine the panic that ran through everyone's body at this realization. The thought that five terrified children were cowering in their room as fire consumed the house. George Sr. fought to get back inside to help his children, but the front door was now spitting flames, so he broke a window, slicing his arm open in the process. As soon as he got inside, however, it was obvious there was no way he could get back up the stairs. Even if the fire hadn't spread everywhere by then, the smoke was so thick he couldn't see, and the risk of suffocating was too high. He decided to attempt to reach the kids through the window of their second-floor bedroom using the ladder that he always kept propped up against the side of the house. But that night, the ladder wasn't there. It would be found the next day at the bottom of an embankment nearby. So George decided to drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb on top of the truck to get in. But even though both trucks had started up without a problem in the morning, Neither started now. Next, he thought he might be able to scoop water from the rain barrel to stifle the flames enough to get to his children. But even if he could have scooped enough water for that plan to work, the water in the barrel was frozen. While George was struggling through one awful piece of bad luck after another, his daughter Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. This was in the days before 911, when if you needed emergency services, you would call the operator and she would connect you to the appropriate service. On this night, though, Marion could not reach an operator. The line rang and rang. A neighbor also attempted to call the fire department from a nearby tavern, and they too failed to reach an operator. Yet another neighbor saw the house on fire as he drove by, so he turned around and drove the two miles back to Fayetteville and somehow alerted the fire chief, F.J. Morris. 
Now, you know how in old-timey movies, when there's a fire, an alarm wails from somewhere? For some inexplicable reason, Fayetteville didn't have a siren or any other sort of alarm system to alert emergency crews. So once the fire chief had called the operator to alert one of the members of his fire crew, that guy had to turn around and call the operator to call the next guy in the crew. Basically, an emergency phone tree. Not very speedy. It's unclear whether the firefighters knew there were children still trapped in the house, but it wouldn't have made a difference to their response time if they did, because, as the Encyclopedia of Unsolved Crimes put it, the department was stymied by, quote, wartime depletion of department manpower and the chief's inability to drive Fayetteville's fire truck. Morris had to wait for a qualified driver to surface, end quote. Which, of course, meant one by one, the members had to call people until they found someone who could drive the truck. So even though the fire chief was made aware of the fire sometime around 1 a.m. and the drive from Fayetteville to the Sodder home was 10 minutes, it took seven hours. Seven hours for the fire department to arrive. The fire department didn't get to the Sodder home until 8 a.m., But even if the department had been operating with a full crew and there had been a proper fire alarm or alert system, the house had collapsed in on itself under the flames in about a half an hour, roughly six and a half hours before the crew did get there. And even if they'd managed to get there before the house collapsed, they didn't have any smoke masks, so they wouldn't have been able to get into the house to make a rescue anyway. Honestly, I don't know what the Sodders outside the house did for all that time, waiting for the firefighters to show up. Like, what could they do? Obviously, once the roof had collapsed into the basement, there was seemingly no hope that the children inside had survived. Now, all that was left to do was find their remains. George Sr., John, and George Jr. assisted the fire crew in the macabre task of looking for any signs of the five children in the ashes and rubble of their home. But by 10 a.m., the search was called off because it was Christmas, which is just one more argument for diversifying your emergency services. If there'd been a couple of Jews, a few Muslims, and a Jehovah's Witness or two on that crew, the search could have continued, and perhaps I wouldn't be telling you this story. The fire marshal told the Sodders that there were no remains of the children in that rubble, but not to touch the site until a more thorough search could be performed, when it wasn't the Lord's birthday. For some reason, though, George Sr. returned to the house on December 29th and covered the rubble in four to five feet of dirt, where the family planned to build a fence and plant flowers in memorial to their lost loved ones. The next day, on December 30th, the police inspector declared that the fire had been the result of faulty wiring, and despite there being no bodies, the coroner issued death certificates for Maurice, Martha, Lewis, Jenny, and Betty Sauter. Once the literal and figurative dust settled over the Sauter home and family, George and Jenny began to question the possibility that every trace of their children could have completely vanished in the fire. Jenny took it upon herself to do her own forensic investigation and burned a variety of animal bones to see if they would be completely incinerated into unidentifiable dust in the time in which it took the house to burn down. 
Every time, she was left with ashes and chunks of bone. Then Jenny asked a local crematorium what conditions it took to completely incinerate a human body and was told even after burning a body at 2,000 degrees for two hours, you're left with small fragments of bone. And, of course, anyone who's ever had a loved one cremated knows there are always small pieces of bone mixed in with the ashes. I know this because when I was a teenager, I got obsessed with the fact that my dad and sister got all the bones when we divided up my mom's ashes and I didn't get any, and that wasn't fair. Listen, I was a teenager, okay? I wasn't being ruled by good sense. How then, Jenny wondered, could all five children's bodies be reduced to ash if the house was completely burned down within a half hour to 45 minutes? Not only that, but according to a piece on CrimeWire, there were still, quote, fruit jars, bed springs, toys, a stove, and part of a dictionary found among the debris, so not everything was destroyed by the fire, end quote. And then the Sodders started retroactively piecing together some oddities they were convinced had something to do with the Christmas Eve fire. For example, a couple months before the fire, they claimed some random stranger came by asking for work. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, after meandering around the house for a little bit, the stranger pointed to a couple of fuse boxes and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. This would stick out in any case, some random dude telling you unprompted that your faulty wiring was going to cause a fire, but George thought it was particularly strange because he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company and it was found to be in fine condition. Then, around the same time, George got told off by a life insurance salesman he had declined to buy life insurance from. The man yelled at George, Your goddamn house is going to be up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. That was my Italian accent, by the way. I am part Italian. Did I mention that? At first, I was really taken aback by this. Someone threatening an American citizen for speaking ill of a fascist dictator? But then I remembered that this happens constantly and casually all over the internet all the time today. So... Apparently, George was outspoken in the Fayetteville Italian community about his dislike of Mussolini, which angered some other members, because, you know, how dare you speak ill of a literal fascist? Anyway, George Jr. and John also recalled a man parked along Highway 21 seemingly watching the kids as they got home from school. And, you know, who knows? I don't know what it means that he was parked along the highway. Like, on the shoulder? Maybe his car was broken down and he was waiting for a tow and it just looked like he was watching the kids. I've known plenty of people who think everything is about them when truthfully, nine times out of 10, when you find yourself asking, what the fuck is that guy looking at? The answer is, not you. But then the Sodders learned that at some point on the night of the fire, their phone line had been cut from a point some 14 feet up a utility pole. Neighbors said they saw a stranger poking around at some point just before, during, or after the fire. The timing is a little unclear. 
Police spoke to him and he admitted to stealing a block and tackle from the Sodder property. And no, I don't know what a block and tackle is. And said that he had cut the phone line by mistake. He meant to cut the power line, which seems to me to suggest it must have happened between the time that Jenny answered the wrong call around 1230, but before the fire. Because why would anyone feel the need to cut the power after the house was already on fire or had burned down? But why was he trying to cut their power in the first place? Also, it turns out it was this fucking jabroni who removed the ladder from the side of the house. And when he was done cutting the wrong line, for some fucking reason, instead of returning the ladder from whence it came, he threw it down the embankment. During the investigation, a bus driver came forward to say he saw what he thought looked like balls of fire at the solder house on the night of the fire. This seems like a super weird thing to witness, don't you think? Don't you think if you saw someone throwing balls of fire at a house and you were driving a bus, you might, I don't know, stop and start honking your horn or yelling or something? Was this a case of revisionist memory or an example of bystander effect, which I'll soon outline in a bonus episode? I don't know. I just feel like if you see someone throwing fire, do something. And then, just a few months after the fire in March of 1946, presumably while visiting the makeshift memorial the Sodders made at the site where their home had been, little Sylvia found what looked to George to be a pineapple bomb hand grenade. And of course, Jenny remembered hearing something land and roll onto the roof about a half hour before the smoke from the fire woke her up. Then again, one would think that they would have heard some kind of explosion or that the fire would have broken out closer to the time she heard the thump on the roof. The Sodders seemed convinced that the fire had started on the roof and spread downward, although evidence showed the opposite. With all of these separate pieces seemingly falling into place, the Sodder family began to wonder if the five children hadn't, in fact, died in the fire, but had somehow gotten out. But if that was the case, where were they? And with whom? As news of the fire hit local papers, tips started coming in from people convinced they'd seen at least one of the Sodder children alive and well and on the run. One woman claimed to have seen the kids through the window of a passing car while the fire was still burning. Again, why she didn't yell or chase the car or something is a big question mark. A woman who ran a tourist stop 50 miles west of Fayetteville claimed to have served the kids breakfast the morning after the fire. She said there'd been a car in the parking lot at the time with Florida plates. And a woman who worked at a hotel in Charleston was sure she'd seen four of the five children about a week after the fire. She told police, The children were accompanied by two men and two women, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. 
And then in 1947, George and Jenny were convinced they saw a photo of Betty in either a Look magazine or a newspaper, depending on which source you read. The photo was of several New York City school children. They were so convinced, in fact, that George drove all the way to Manhattan to speak to the girl, but her parents refused. I have to assume that he just lurked outside the school because I don't know how he possibly could have known where she lived. And sure, it's never a good idea to let your daughter speak to a stranger, but if someone came to me and was like, I think your child might be my son who I think was kidnapped two years ago, I would let them speak to my kid, with me there, holding firmly to his shoulders. What could the harm possibly be? What did they have to hide? Finally, George decided to go right to the top and wrote to the FBI asking for their help. They received a letter back, signed by the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, that read, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Honestly, I have no idea what J. Edgar Hoover sounded like. Besides, of course, Hoover was too busy illegally gathering information on people he didn't like in order to suppress or sabotage them. So, you know, priorities. So the Sodders hired private investigator C.C. Tinsley, who uncovered a couple of very curious details. For starters, Tinsley learned that the same insurance salesman who warned George that his house would burn down sat on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire to be an accident. I guess we shouldn't really be that surprised. A man who yells at another that his house will burn down because he didn't buy life insurance from him is probably not above lying on a jury. Anyway, Tinsley also discovered that Fire Chief Morris had confided in someone that he'd discovered a heart in the ashes and for some reason hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene? Tinsley convinced Morris to show them where he'd buried it. They dug it up and took it to a funeral home where the person in charge opened the box and was like, uh, this is a cow liver. It turns out Morris buried the cow liver in the rubble in the hopes that someone would find it and think it was proof that the children had died in the fire and move on. Why the heart would be in a box, I don't know. Also, why didn't he just pretend to find it himself? Honestly, it doesn't seem like Morris thought this plan through. Another PI working with the Sodders, Detective George Swain, said he thought the children may have been kidnapped from the home on the premise of going to a Christmas party and then were sold on what he called the, quote, baby black market. And the next year, in 1949, George hired a pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter to excavate the site to see if there was anything missed in the initial two-hour search. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, quote, the excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae, end quote. The bones were sent to the Smithsonian to be inspected and were found to have belonged to a 16 or 17-year-old, two or three years older than 14-year-old Maurice, the oldest of the children who would have died in the fire, and that there was no fire damage to the bones. 
Additionally, the Smithsonian's report on the bones said this, quote, It is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house, end quote. And that because the house burned down in about a half an hour, quote, one would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae, end quote. Ultimately, it was determined that the bones must have come from the dirt George trucked in to cover the rubble of the home. Which begs the question, where did that dirt come from and what the hell happened there? And while the Sodder's personal plea to the FBI hadn't worked, it seems that once the Smithsonian issued their report about the mysterious bones in 1950, the FBI suddenly got interested. They were like, hey, maybe this is a multi-state kidnapping thing. To which I imagine George and Jenny were like, uh, yeah, we said that years ago. But after just two years, the feds backed off, which is a little strange because I think it's pretty much an established fact that a lot of kidnappings involve state border crossings. So how or why the FBI decided this case wasn't worth their time, I don't know. Around this time, the West Virginia State Police investigators also got involved, and according to the Smithsonian website, quote, the Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders their search was hopeless and declared the case closed, end quote. So, once again, the Sodders took matters into their own hands and erected a billboard depicting the names and faces of their five missing children. At first, they offered a $5,000 reward, but upped it to $10,000. That's over $100,000 in today money. The billboard became a sort of unofficial local attraction and tourist destination. According to the piece on the Smithsonian Magazine website, Quote, a letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. Another tip came from Texas where a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. George traveled the country to investigate each lead, always returning home without any answers, end quote. And then, in 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny received a letter postmarked from Kentucky without a return address. It was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties, and on the reverse side of the picture, a handwritten note said, quote, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. The age of the man in the picture matched up with how old Lewis, who was nine at the time of the fire, would have been in 1968. The hair and eyes matched Lewis, plus he had the same shaped nose and the same tilt of the left eyebrow. So the Sodders hired yet another PI and sent him to Kentucky to try to track this person down, but the PI, it seems, took their money and then vanished. Cool. The Sodders worried that publishing the text of the letter or publicizing that it came from Kentucky might somehow put their son in danger. Instead, they added an enlarged version of only the picture to the billboard. George died later that same year, in 1968, shortly after giving an interview in which he said, Time is running out for us, but we only want to know 
if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Jenny lived another 20 years dressing only in black every day until 1989 when she died. After her death, the billboard came down. Strangers, if you hate shaving as much as I do, you need to get yourself an Athena Club razor kit. Hell, even if you love shaving, more power to you, but get yourself an Athena Club razor. For only 10 bucks, you get a sleek, cute handle in a variety of colors that you can choose from, including minimalist black and white, mine is mint green, a magnetic shower hook, and two extra blade heads surrounded by a water-activated skin-soothing serum made from shea butter and hyaluronic acid. Listen, I did some comparison shopping recently, and you cannot get this kind of quality for 10 bucks with any other brand. It doesn't exist. Sure, you can buy a cheaper razor, but like, this is your skin we're talking about. And for some of us, it's super delicate, sensitive skin we're talking about. No one likes a cut on their taint. With the Athena Club razor, you get a clean, smooth, close shave with no bumps or razor burns. Plus, their shaving cream is silky and luxurious. A little goes a long way. I love how it leaves my skin feeling. Is your skin worth 10 bucks? I bet it is. Ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head over to athenaclub.com and grab your razor kit today, or you can find Athena Club razors at your local Target. Plus, with your purchase of a razor kit and blade subscription on their site, you can try their gentle body scrub for free with code STRANGE at checkout for a limited time only. Just pick a plan for your razor kit, begin checkout, and add the code STRANGE before placing your order to automatically add a body scrub to your shipment. Trust me, you won't look back. Happy shaving! Strangers, my new sponsor, Naked Wines, wants you to know you don't have to stand in the wine aisle for hours trying to discern anything about the wines based on their label. Naked Wines connects you directly to the vineyard for up to 60% off what you'd pay at your fancy little wine shop down the street. Did you know that at a bar or restaurant, you're sometimes being charged for a glass what the entire bottle cost? Don't do that. TBH, I live in a state that doesn't allow alcohol delivery, plus I have cut my drinking down to almost zero, but I recently sent a box of naked wine to my bestie Jordan, who was more than happy to fall on this particular sword for me. Jordan has the most packed social calendar of anyone I know, and she was able to bring a delicious independent label wine to all of her various showers and parties and what have you, courtesy of me. And the reviews are in. The wines from Naked Wines were a huge hit. And the best part is, there's no membership or commitment required. With Naked Wines, you can order wine when you want it. Naked Wines cuts out the middle person so you don't have to pay for anything but high-quality wine from independent wineries that are passionate about making wine. So head to nakedwines.com strange and click enter voucher in the top right when you get to the website and enter strange for both the code and password and get six bottles of wine for just $39.99 with shipping included. That's $100 off and less than $7 per bottle. 
That's nakedwines.com slash strange and use the code and password strange and grab six bottles for just $39.99. One last time, that's nakedwines.com slash strange, code and password strange for $100 off your first six bottles. After George and Jenny's deaths, their surviving children continued to look for their siblings, and over the years, various theories have been floated as to what might have happened to them. Some people believe they were stolen at some point before or during the fire and sold to an orphanage and or brought back to Italy by people who either started the fire as a distraction or were child traffickers who just happened to luck into a burning home with lots of children in it. And because the Sodders were Italian, of course, some people suspect mafia involvement. These rumors claim that the local mafia had either tried to recruit George and he'd refused, or that they tried and failed to extort money from George and took his children as punishment. But one would think that if that were the case, they would have come back to him after the children were gone and either gotten him to join or got his money. One would think that holding someone's children hostage would be the perfect way to extort money from them. But Sergeant Mike Spraden of the West Virginia State Police told journalist Stacy Horn, For them to be carried out of that house and held against their will for that many years is implausible because they could have easily escaped their captors. They've grown up, had children of their own, and for them never to try to contact the family is just, I don't buy that. Horn also found evidence that the Sodders believed their children might have been kidnapped by a relative who lived in Florida. Apparently, those relatives were investigated and had to prove that their children were their biological children, which I'm assuming they did because that never went anywhere. In the end, most people found it unlikely that the children were kidnapped and that, in all likelihood, they perished in the fire. It is possible the Sodders were victims of arson. George did piss off a couple people, what with his not buying life insurance and speaking out against a murderous fascist. According to a few sources, there was another man who'd allegedly threatened George before the fire. This man, Fiorenzo Gamble Gianutolo, as director of the Fayette County National Bank, was the co-signer on a loan George took out and was listed as a beneficiary on an insurance policy on the Sodder home. Janitolo's cousin and business partner, a man named Cliente, had also sat on the coroner's jury. Journalist Stacy Horn argues that given how much noise the Sodders made about other potential leads and suspects, the fact that they didn't make a stir about Janitolo means they were probably pretty satisfied that he had nothing to do with the fire. As for the five children who should have been in bed when the fire started, the only actual indication that they were indeed inside at the time of the blaze was John Sodder's claim that he'd gone into their room and shook them awake on his way out. But it's entirely likely that John, in his shock and grief after the fire, either lied about having tried to rouse his siblings because he felt awful that he hadn't, or his mind did what minds sometimes do and mixed a bit of fantasy in with memory, and he became convinced that he had tried to shake them awake. Either way, I think it's fair to say that no one is pointing any kind of accusatory finger at John. 
I think he was just a teenager who lost nearly half his family in the span of about a half an hour and couldn't handle the loss. Oddly, though, according to Horn, quote, a brief informal search took place, but instead of the skeletons they expected to find, firefighters encountered just a few bones and pieces of internal organs. The family was never told that anything was found, end quote. Michelle Short over at CrimeWire quoted two contemporary news articles that both claimed human remains were found in the rubble including a piece from the Montgomery Herald on January 2nd, 1946, that stated, quote, No more parts of the bodies were found other than as reported the day following the fire. That small portion of a spinal column, apparently that of a little girl, six, was placed in a container and it, in turn, placed in the center of the basement into which the others had fallen, end quote. But Short points out neither article cited their sources. It's entirely possible they were printing rumors and hearsay. Let's hear it for crack journalism. According to Horn's reporting, however, at least four people reported having seen some remains in the rubble the morning of the fire. Why in the world didn't anyone tell the Sodders? If the fire marshal went so far as to bury a beef liver in the rubble in the hopes of tricking them into thinking it was one of their children's hearts, why wouldn't they have shouted the claims of the people who said they saw remains from the rooftops? And of course, the search was haphazard and only two hours long. As Horn put it, quote, Today, the search would take days and possibly weeks, end quote. Furthermore, as Horn astutely points out, just because the house came down in 45 minutes doesn't mean the fire was out. Fire like that would smolder for hours and hours. Given there was a gap of about six and a half hours between the time the house collapsed and when the search began, it's possible that the children's bodies were completely incinerated in that time. Sylvia Sauter, who was two years old when she survived the fire, died in 2021 at 78 years old. She said that her earliest memories were from that night. The chaos, her father's bloody arm, the screams. She never gave up hope that her older siblings had survived the fire. For her, it seems, it was easier to live with the thought that they had been stolen and taken to whatever fate their captors had in store for them, than to imagine them burning up in that fire. The only comfort I can take is that if Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty didn't make it out of the house and did indeed perish in that fire, which is still the most likely scenario, the smoke killed them before they felt the flames. That, and at least they were together. It is the only possible thing I can hold on to to make a story like this even slightly easier to accept. I don't know. Take a deep breath, hug your children tight, and for God's sake, make a disaster preparedness plan. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. Ever wish you could have an imaginary friend as an adult? You can. Just be sure to call it a tulpa and be very, very careful what you ask it to do. 
Can't get enough Strange and Unexplained? Join us over on Patreon for three bonus episodes a month for just $5. Or for $7, you get three bonus episodes and all the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Luther Creek, and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. You can find us on social media, SNUpod, and check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. A five-star rating and a quick sentence about what you love about the podcast really does help. And if you hate the podcast, feel free to leave a scathing review. The podcast name is The McCarthy Report. 